श्री गोरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए श्रीमद भगवद गीता की जाए श्री श्री कृष्ण अर्जुन की जाए Reading tonight from the third chapter, continuing our discussion of this chapter. Chapter is entitled Karma Yoga. Chapter begins with two verses of Arjun's inquiry, where he expresses respectfully his confusion. His confusion about Krishna's discourse on knowledge and his simultaneous. emphasis on action and why would he be confused because action and knowledge don't seem to go together in that the knowledge that he's talking about has talked about in the previous chapter is knowledge of the self and if you have knowledge of the self which as he's described the self to be is different from matter then why would you engage in action which is an in relation to things that don't endure rather than sit and contemplate that which is enduring your own self so arjuna is a little confused about that but as we've heard he has already accepted krishna as his guru in the previous chapter so when he inquires here we have what constitutes a respectful and pertinent inquiry he's inquiring about how to proceed here not just uh, to collect some information but he wants to proceed and he's confused about what path to go on he thinks that krishna has talked about two different paths so in verse 3 as we heard krishna said uh, really not speaking about two paths but one path or one faith or one nishta one determination one fixation one faith that will express itself differently for different persons who are on different um at different stages along the path so this is an interesting point in and of itself that two people may be acting in an apparently different or contradictory ways and beyond the same path the path is full of this kind of thing actually as puja patrida mars used to say progress means acceptance yes elimination and acceptance so at one point certain things will be accepted and embraced and another point the same things may be rejected in the gita the, the, the huge contrast in this regard is in the beginning uh, perhaps it's coming in this chapter he says that you should perform your duty at all costs and what does he say at the end of the gita sarvadharma pratyaja you give up your duty so it's only confusing if we don't have um a, a comprehensive picture of the path and understand that it may express itself differently at different times along the way at one point we may speak preach strongly to someone that they should marry and uh take the path of household life not too often but sometimes we stress that and at other same time the same person may say then that should be given up hmm? now you've passed through that it's not time to relive it again with uh, with the grandchildren now you have some freedom so now you become a child so to speak that is the sanyasi he's the child of the society hmm? a wise one 
who's to be taken care of because he has no other means, apparently, but indeed, in fact, because he's a wise child, he's taken care of everyone by sharing uh, his uh, or her wisdom, as may be the case. So, um, one path, the path is one. Here, we're beginning the yoga, the ascent, if you will, on the yoga, the proverbial yoga, yoga ladder of the Gita, beginning with chapter 3 and taking us up uh, to chapter 6, beginning with uh, uh, karma yoga, jnana yoga, karma sannyas, dhyana yoga, and bhakti yoga. Of course, in the previous chapter, these things have more or less been discussed in summary form, karma, jnana, yoga, and um, now they're being played out in greater detail in the successive chapters. In this first section of the Gita, the first six chapters, which is, uh, we would sometimes describe it as the yoga psychology of the Gita, middle six chapters being the theology, and the uh, last six chapters being the kind of the metaphysics that underlie the theology. Of course, that's a general division. These things are found throughout at the same time. So here now we come to verse 4 tonight of the third chapter. And um, after Krishna has said briefly to Arjuna that, as I mentioned, there's only really one path I'm talking about here, don't be confused. But at different stages it will express itself differently for different persons. At one point it's Nishkam Karma Yoga, at another point the same path is, is Jnana Yoga. And uh, so now he's going to stress this Nishkam Karma, Nishkam Karma Yoga, which he told Arjuna in the second chapter what? In the second chapter, Krishna began speaking about yoga. What kind of yoga did he begin speaking about? Bhakti yoga. And after that, from verse, say, 39 to 42, after a brief and kind of, um, I want to say, kind of covert uh uh, emphasis on bhakti, uh, not like the emphasis we find, for example, in the middle chapters or at the end of the sixth chapter where he says, Yoginam apisarvesham madhyatinantaratmana shadavan bhajate yomam same yukta tamomata yukta uttama. This is the yukta, the means of linking by yoga that is uttam, the best, and it's bhakti, devotion to me, and so forth. And then all, you know, all we find in the middle six chapters. The whole chapter, chapter 12 about bhakti, the ninth chapter, of course, uh, about Shuddha bhakti, extends itself into the tenth chapter as well. Eleventh chapter, we find Shuddha bhakti to the to Swayam Bhagavan, the two-handed form, surpasses the universal form and the four-armed form. The seventh chapter, eighth chapter, we find mixed yoga, pure and mixed, uh, pure and mixed bhakti, bhakti mixed with karma, bhakti mixed with jnana, bhakti mixed with yoga, Shuddha bhakti. It's all bhakti, bhakti, bhakti. So it's more overt there. Here in the, in the second chapter where it begins, it's a little more um, of veiled references, but if we carefully study the words there and the verses, at, right as he begins to speak about yoga, we can speak, he's talking about, about bhakti. It's nirayoga chematma bhan. It's trigunya vishayabheda. It's, it's above the modes. It's not sattvic, which is jnana. It's not rajasic, which is karma yoga. Hmm? You didn't know that. Karma yoga is rajasic. 
Rajaguna is, is pretty elevated, actually. <laughs> uh, you can begin to do yoga under that influence. It means to say because there's activity in relation to the scriptures and so forth. Uh, of course, if you do it without, without motive, then it leads to knowledge, which is sattvic. But bhakti is transcendental to sattva, rajas, tamas. It's nistraigunyo. And nirdvandva, nitya sattvasto, nirdvandva. It's beyond duality and yoga chemam, vahami. Um, well, that's the, that's in the ninth chapter, but the same words are used. Nir yoga nitya sattvasto, nir yoga chematavan, nir yoga chema, nir yoga chema. In this yoga, there's no worrying for sustenance. You know, Krishna's providing. This is bhakti yoga. Neha vikramanashosti. Can that be karma yoga? No. In karma yoga, if you don't do it right, you don't do the karmic activity right, you don't get the result. But if you do it wrong in bhakti, you still get the result. A little, little bit of effort in this path is to your eternal credit. Uh, so in this way, our charges have pointed out that he begins speaking about bhakti, but maybe around verse 47 he says a very important thing. He says, but anyway, he briefly kind of stops and says, you have eligibility. What, what, what is that in Sanskrit? Adhikar. And that, what is this all about? It's all about adhikar, this ladder of yoga. Eligibility. According to your eligibility, you'll apply yourself in yoga or that yoga will be expressed in a particular way. So he says, you have adhikara for karma yoga. But, he says what? You have adhikara to act according to your dharma as prescribed in the scriptures, but you don't have the right to the fruits of your labor. So he's introducing karma yoga. And yoga means the, the, the sacrificing of the fruits. This is what makes karma really progressive rather than the remote way in which karma outside of really an overt sense of sacrifice is, 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 is fruitful. That means to say that you can do, perform your, your duty prescribed in the scriptures with attachment to the fruits to go to heaven even. You go up and you go down, right? But still there's some remote benefit in that because there's a sacrifice built into doing the, those prescribed duties rather than acting whimsically. So, but anyway, he wants to take him further. So now he begins a, a little more of a systematic discourse, or emphasis on, I should say, this Nishkam Karma Yoga, which he said previously, what you have eligibility for. He talked about it briefly, and then he went on and talked about it in the second chapter about those who perfect themselves in yoga, the stita pragya, those who have their intelligence fixed on atma, what they're like, and so forth. So now he's coming back to that, right? Nishkam Karma Yoga. He's going to emphasize it to Arjun over Gyan because he's told Arjun, this is what you have eligibility for. So he says, the nice thing first, he says, Nakarmanam anarambham, naishkarmyam purushosnute, nacha sanyasanat eva siddhim samadigachati. He says, not karmanam anarambhat, not by abstaining from Karma, from here that means prescribed duties. Not by merely abstaining from, from action can one attain a state beyond action. And nācha sannyāsa nāt eva siddhim samadigachati. 
Neither by renunciation alone can one attain perfection. Renunciation here refers more to gyan, right? Giving up action. Based on what? Real knowledge as to the temporary nature of things and thus not being fooled by them and chasing after them. That's gyan. That means moving away from action. So sannyasa and gyan, they, they, they somewhat go together, right? Sannyasa, giving up action, you have to have a certain amount of knowledge. That means you have to have a pure heart. So he says, not merely by sannyasa, it means not merely by giving up the action, prescribed action, without a pure heart. That won't be good. Indeed, a good day's work, in, the, in a real basic sense, this verse says, a good day's, a hard day's work, an honest, day, an honest day's labor is good for you. You've got to start somewhere. We should, for our livelihood, have a means to provide for ourselves and our family that is honest. It's difficult to do that in today's society, I suppose, because there's corporate cheating and so many things. We don't, how do you, you know, people are concerned. They just sort that out. They, there are good people that want to have a ethically sound means of livelihood. Largely, it's tied to environmental sensibilities and um, moving away from kind of corporate capitalistic greed and so forth. It's something. But there's greater power in the activities here that Krishna is speaking about when he says renouncing them. On a lower sense, we'll say just giving up. I remember years ago in Eugene, I got the devotees together and said, are you going to school? Are you going to work or are you a monk? In other words, get to work or get to school, one of the two, and get out of the Saturday market and, you know, the hippie scene and, you know, the, the false you know, excuses for doing nothing. And, and so on the low level, like I say, that it's important to have an honest living. Work is good work. Work is purifying on some level. But there's power also in action prescribed in the scripture. There's power in that. And in a very basic sense, the power is that I'm doing the things that, that revelation is dictating rather than what I might choose to do. And so you can see there's some control of the, that you're coming under there, some acknowledgement of authority and so forth, and um, a certain degree of faith in, in revelation is required for such. So um, these activities prescribed activities for Arjuna, the activities of a Kshatriya, and all of that entails in, uh, in the uh, Varnashram system, to adhere to them, it's purifying. That's why you can go to heaven by doing them. You get good re- a good result. It's limited. In another, another level, we're going to criticize that and say that's a waste of time and so forth. But it's important to note that with regard to karma, with regard to jnana, while we speak of bhakti and emphasize it, and sometimes in the context of doing so, glorify bhakti by stressing what it's not and what the shortcomings of jnana are, what, what it's not and the shortcomings of karma are, and so forth. It's also stated uh, in the Puranas for in relation to bhakti and, and nam, which is our primary you know, dharma, nam dharma we're doing, nam sankirtan, that what? It is an offense to... Um, criticize the scriptures. And sometimes this, this operata is, is defined as an offense to, to criticize the sections of the scriptures about jnana and karma because they are ordained 
by Bhagwan. They're in the scripture, and they have their application for people who don't have adhikar for bhakti. We may need to constructively criticize them by way of pointing out what bhakti is, which will give people adhikar for bhakti. That's what a saintly person does. And that's from whom adhikar for bhakti comes. Vishwana Chakuritakura at the beginning of this chapter said that in his commentary that Krishna is speaking to Arjuna about Nishkam Karma Yoga and saying this is all he has eligibility for because he hasn't met a saint yet which, where you get adhikar for bhakti. This is where it comes. Not by doing anything. Not from anything, it means to say what? Nothing from your side can produce eligibility for bhakti. From your side, maybe for karma, for jnana, another way of emphasizing the, the super excellence of bhakti. It's a grace. It comes from up to down. And so it has, in, in a, in a, in a, it has great power in it, uh, great efficacy. So Arjuna, of course, is the, you know, the, is the archetypal you know, student here. We know his position is different. He has, he's a great devotee. But in the context of the Leela and the Gita, he's telling him, you only have Adhikar for Nishkam Karmi. He wants to talk about the beginning of real spiritual life. So he says, not by giving up your prescribed duties, which have a purifying effect, nor by uh, abandoning them, not by abandoning them, can you state, attain a state beyond action, nor by renunciation alone. So you might think, well, renunciation is a, okay, I'm not going to just give up my duty. You know, that would be whimsical. That's the one side. But the other side is, what if I do it non-whimsically and I become a sannyasi? But that requires qualification. So without a pure heart, that'll be a problem. So that either, neither of those will work. So he's giving on both sides. You can't whimsically give up your duty, which you're talking about doing. He talked about it in the first chapter. He's going to give up his duty. He had all these reasons and so forth. Arjuna didn't, Krishna didn't accept him. At one point, Krishna said, well, maybe I should go you know, in the forest or whatever. You're not a sannyasi. Huh? He's telling him, you know, your heart hasn't been purified. So, no. You're, and you're moving away from the very thing that will purify your heart, that will qualify you for that. So don't jump ahead, he's saying. And he's going to talk about this for about six verses here or so. But he's going to emphasize this, this point in different ways. He's going to stress what the problem is with doing, doing that, being an artificial sannyasi, what the benefit is of not being it, and how, and how the, you'll get the desired result. So let me go through the verses, and then we'll talk a little bit, if we have time, about how it applies to bhakti, because he's not talking really about bhakti. But nonetheless, because bhakti is the comprehensive yoga, we should know that whatever is in karma yoga, nishkam karma yoga, whatever is in jnana yoga, that's going to come to us within bhakti. And bhakti siddhanta and bhakti vinod were very, very much strong on emphasizing adhikar, as the Gita does, right, in relation to bhakti. So we'll, we'll try to get to that. But then he says, nahi kaschid Kshanam api jatu tistati akarmakrit karjatehi avasha karma sarva prakriti jair gunai. What? Indeed, no one, even for a twinkling of an eye, remains free from action. All people are forced to act even against their own will under the influence of the gunas born of material nature. So he's talking about the, the very force within us that causes us to act how he wants to stress action on Arjuna's part. He knows he can't 
sit and be inactive, that will cause a problem. He says, Karmendriyani samyamya yaste manasasmaran indriyartan vimudhatma mityacharas uchate. He says, a person who sits, restraining his working senses while contemplating the objects of the senses, mityachara, so uchate. Mitya means what? False. He's a false. He's a bogey yogi. He's a cheater. So he's making these strong statements. And you're an honest man. You don't want to be that. You're going to sit. You're going to restrain your senses. But you're going to be thinking, because your heart's not pure, you're going to be thinking about the contemplating them anyway. So that's it's bogus. Better to do an honest day's labor. You'll be better than a false false mystic, false, false sannyasi. Better to do an honest day's labor, work hard. And, of course, he's talking about here working with the sacrificing of the fruits of one's action. Then he says what? Yastvindriyani manasa niyaram bhate arjuna However, on the contrast, if one begins to control the senses by the mind or Arjuna, and without attachment engages his working senses in karma yoga, he's superior to a false yogi. So he's very carefully explaining what he, what he meant in the previous chapters, why he stressed both. One is a means to the other. Nishkam karma yoga is a means to a, a somewhat user-friendly means to arriving at Gyan. Niyatam guru karmatvam karma jayogi akarmanaha sharira jatrapi chate na prasidyad akarmanaha Perform a prescribed duty, for doing so is better than inaction. One cannot even maintain one's body without action. So he's saying even the, even the, even the sannyasi has got to do some action. They gotta beg, they gotta get some food, they gotta clothe themselves and so forth. So, so don't be against action. That's not what I'm teaching you. It's not the action. It's, it's the, the motivation with which we conduct ourselves. It's, it's all important. Yajnartat karmanonyatra lokoyam karma bandana. Tarartam karma kunte mukta sangha samacharan. So he concludes, other than action performed for the purpose of sacrifice, all action in this world is binding. Act in sacrifice for the satisfaction of God, O son of Kunti, without being attached to enjoying the results. So this is what he tells him to do, Nishkam Karma Yoga. And, he, and it, with, the, with, a, with a caveat here, a qualifier, for the satisfaction of Bhagavan. So that's a certain type of Karma Yoga. One might do Karma Yoga. It's kind of a real pre... The way he's talking about Nishkam Karma Yoga... It's like a precursor to bhakti. It's it's almost bhakti. I believe Vishwana Chakritakar has a name for it also. Uh, and I have to look in his commentary. But it's, it's a time. Because why? The results, it's one thing to do the work and sacrifice the results. Let's say, for example, in a modern context, you want to do some, it's sometimes popular to volunteer now, to go out and do some volunteer work. Like your son sometimes goes and does some just random volunteer work for some social cause. So he's giving his, his action, he's doing it, and the results are for the cause. That's one thing. It's another thing to do the work and give the results to Krishna. So this is the kind of Nishkam Karma Yoga he's talking about, which so much um, um, 
brings one in the direction of bhakti, you could say. So, with regard to bhakti, of course, all of this eligibility applies. Bhakti Vinotaku was very fond of what does it say in Bhagavatam 11th canto? Sve sve atikari nishtas saguna parikitita. That one who is fixed, nishta, uh, and applies himself with concentration and appropriately, he applies himself according to what he or she is eligible for on the path, he exemplifies the, the sum and substance, the essence of appropriate behavior is beautiful, is becoming, as we said before. When we act inappropriately, you know, if we if we see the guru and we run up and embrace the guru, uh, basically we should pay obeisances to the guru. If the guru wants to embrace us, that's one thing. We don't go, hey, pal. You know, so there's some etiquette. So it's unbecoming. Uh, if someone is um, elevated beyond their level of expertise, it becomes a real problem. It becomes elephant in the room, right? Or, you know, vice versa as well. If you don't take advantage of someone's ability, then it becomes a problem. So this applies to bhakti. Bhakti Vinod Thakur was fond of quoting this in relation to bhakti. That's why he had the idea of some kind of daiva varnashram, where devotees are, have faith so that they're on the bhakti marg, but where are they on the bhakti marg, and how shall they conduct themselves? Uh, it's the paramhamsa marg. It's beyond karma, gyan. It's a post-liberated, you know, yoga, even. So there were many people who were mityachara, suchate, going to the forest with, uh, you know, the beads, like Haridas Thakur or something. But they, they were contemplating in their minds sense objects in bhakti of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission really got a bad name. It was said at the time in Bengal that if a, if a Vaishnava came to the door of a pious Hindu to beg, and the Hindu lady would say, who is at the door? And the servant would say, oh, it's, uh, it's one of Chaitanya's people. So give him some money and send him away. They wouldn't think, come in, take prasad and share your knowledge with me. Anybody who had no caste, they'd claim themselves members of Chaitanya's and think that they became, you know, uh, above the caste and so forth. So this was a problem, as Bhaktivinoda Thakur saw it, and sorted all out it was difficult, but uh, he did and found the what really Chaitanya Bhakti was about, and then commissioned, of course, his son Bhaktivinoda Saraswati Thakur to pursue that. He, he personally engaged him in in this uh, idea, idea, idea of Varnashram, which is two meanings. One meaning to Varnashram is what? That there's Asura Varnashram. In other words, there's a there's a considered determination made as to one's caste that's not based on their qualities and their activities. And this becomes oppressive. That's the caste system, if you will. And, and then there's one that actually is, is divine in that it takes into consideration what, the, what a person's um, duty is based on their activities and their, um, their um, qualities. In other words, you might be born in a family of dog eaters, those Chinese people that eat what the fermented meat we're hearing today. Uh, so that's not very good. Um, not offerable and so forth, but you could be a nice devotee nonetheless, or, uh, you know, so not just by birth. <clears throat> so that's one. But the higher idea of it was that within the context of bhakti, there should be some determination of how to engage people. There should be a mission. 
Bhakti Siddhanta started that mission. He employed a system of Daivavarnashram where the um, the Brahmins were those who could take sannyas, and the Kshatriyas were the temple organizers, the mission organizers. They organized the, the monasteries and and so forth. And the Vaishyas were the householders who donated, supplied the money, basically fed the stomach. And the Sudras were those who who, who couldn't keep up the pace, and they would leave, and they'd come back, or that kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, 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 he had some kind of a system like this. I saw an article about it once, quite some time ago. It's a big topic, of course, in the in the ISKCON devotee community, Varnashram, but I think it's it's often very much misunderstood. Daiva Varnashram. Basically, it, it is, in essence, it's about adhikar and finding a way to engage people that... Uh, that brings them into balance materially so that they're better suited and more fit to, to proceed spiritually on two feet. Like I'd like to say, you know, if you're going to jump up in the sky and touch the stars, it's good to start with two feet on the ground. That's the same thing that Krishna's talking about here. We don't say, okay, you want to do bhakti, here's your beads, uh, chant 64 rounds and do astakar kalila smarnam all day long, and uh, that's the path. And that's what the Goswamis did, and so forth. Bhakti Siddhanta had another idea. He said, you know, he didn't say it, but we say it, shrub scrubbanum mapanum, shravanum kirtanum. So get, even people can't sit and do shravanum kirtanum, hearing and chanting 24 hours a day. Let's have a temple for Vishnu. Let's have him clean the temple, scrub the temple, and get busy with all kinds of work. That work will be purifying. That work will, like Abai said to me the other day, he used to like the festival. I was like, you're really busy, keeping me busy all the time. When I first joined the mission, I wanted to keep busy all the time. I didn't want to have time in between because I'd probably just go to sleep, I thought. And I'm, so, you know, I was a little fanatical. I wrote, sleep is death on my mirror. And, my, and I just kept busy all the time, you know, mostly going out talking to people about Krishna, as it turned out. But I didn't want any, any break, any in between, any like, okay, I've worked hard, I'm entitled now. No, I'm just I'm a servant here, you know. So where's where's the next service? The next service, I go to the temple president in Los Angeles. Say, what's the next service? You know. Then I, of course, engaged myself, going out and selling the books every day, and that's a long story. But at any rate, the point is that um, this is kind of the legacy, if you will, of uh, of our particular party bar coming from Bhakti Vinod and Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthakur, very much. It involves emphasis on adhikar, applying the same principle here that is being applied in a, in a general sense to karma yoga then gyan yoga within bhakti. So, as I said before, we should look in our application of bhakti that if we're doing it right, there should be some progress made, and the progress will be that well, we start to become detached from the. We may do. We may be engaged, for example, according to what's that? Philip? Daniel wanted to come. He came to the festival. And he's got some a skill set, as they say, you know, if he's a plumber and so, he'll want to be doing all those things for Krishna. So we'll want we have plenty of that to do. So we'll engage him. And meanwhile, you know, um, Chidahari would built the temple along with others, of course, all of us did, and so forth. I'm telling you all now. Now it's time to study. You know, you built the temple. You, you worked hard in this. So you've been here a while. You've understood some things. So. Now let the you know new people come and they'll do the work and you'll teach learn and teach them and so forth. 
course, we can't over-promote you either, you know, so therefore we've got a few hours a day that you're out there raking leaves or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. So um, this, we found, this approach of Bhakti Siddhanta Sosratyakar has really taken Gaudiya Vaishnavism all over the world. Hmm? As much as sometimes people today criticize Bhakti Siddhanta Sosratyakar, it's, uh, it's so inappropriate, it's so out of place, it's so short-sighted. They criticize the, some of the results of his movement a uh, hundred years later as ideas about what he was about are presented by people with much less realization than him. And, and he would be the first to criticize his own group. That's what he did. He was a Gaudiya Vaishnavism and he criticized Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And this was a lot of the criticism that people without Adhikar are posing themselves as Rup Sanatana and doing Leela Smarnam and this is a high thing. Therefore, Pujala Raga Patagodava Vanga, Matala Hari Janakirtananga. This was his, that, that was a theme that, that Pujapachita Marsh picked up on and inscribed it on his temple. And Namadweep lets us worship Rupa and Raghunath and the Ragmarg and what that's all. Let us trumpet everywhere through our preaching. What, how high is the Ragmarg? How high is the Ragmarg? And one of the ways that we'll do that is by saying, that's not the Ragmarg. That's not the Ragmarg. That's not. So at least 50% of his preaching was, what is not Madhurya Rasa? What is not Madhurya Rasa? Hmm? That's like glorifying with reverence. This, I, this ideal of Brajabhakti, he said, this will bring that within you. That will able you to, enable you to cross over. By reverence for Ragmarg, you'll get entrance to Ragmarg. He's not advocating reverential bhakti for Narayan, but reverence for how just how high is Radha's love for Krishna. And... Um, he doesn't want any, you know, mityachara, false tears and, you know, falling on the ground and for prestige. And therefore his famous, he sat down and did meditation and bhajan for a long, long, long time. And then he came out of it and wrote his famous and powerful prayer. Uh, what, is, what is it called? Vaishnav K. Vaishnav K. What kind of Vaishnav? Who's a Vaishnav? Vaishnav K. Who? Vaishnav. That's how it began. My dear mind, what kind of Vaishnava are you? My dear mind, what kind of Vaishnava are you? Simply for pratishta, for prestige, that you're a big mystic now. You sit down to do Harinam and draw attention to yourself, that's all. So, this is a man, a devotee, who could sit down and he took a vow to chant with a billion, a billion names, I guess. He, you know, he did the Haridas Thakur, 300,000 names. I hear these people, sometimes they say, you know, that, that my guru chants, you know, 300,000, three lakhs. Yeah, three lakhs of, of names. And uh, he chants three lakhs of names in, in you know, in, in four hours, you know. And uh, the other one did six lakhs of names. The whole idea of the three lakhs is that it, is that it took 24 hours. That was the whole idea of emphasizing. Taridas Thakur did it, it did three lakhs. It means 24 hours he was chanting. It's not that you do three lakhs in two hours. You know, in the mind. 
they were getting it done real fast. You know, I did my three lakhs, and now I'm going to relax. You know, whatever. So you know, he he actually did it. You know, he actually sat down. It doesn't matter if it's three hundred thousand or if it's sixteen, and it takes you twenty-four hours. You know, the speed is not what it's about. That's how many you do. It's the time and the quality and so forth. So he he sat down and chanted for whatever it was. I guess it's a month to arrive at a billion names, three hundred thousand a day, three hundred thousand times thirty. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, a long time. Yeah, he was chanting for a long. He did budget for a long time, and this is what he came up with. Now that is really deep. You understand? I mean, all that chanting for so, and this is what he came up with. Not you know, oh, I'm at in the bhav with uh, with Radha and so forth. He came up with it. It's like Bhakti Bhaktivinoda How did he describe asakti? Asakti is the high stage, the end of sadhana bhakti, where the sadhaka has attachment to Krishna in a particular way, and so the form and ego. It corresponds with that way and that form. It's, if it's Gopi Bab or Sakya Bab, that's starting to appear in his heart. And how did Bhakti Thakur describe it? What song did he sing in his Bhajan Rahasya? What Bhajan Rahasya is, is a description of Shikshastakam as, as an approach to Bhajan in stages. And when he got to Asakti, he gave a, a song to sing for that. What is that? A song? No. Oh. Amar Jibana, how does it go? Anadi Karma Phale, Bhavanara Navajale, Anadi I have been attached to the material world since time immemorial. I'm under the influence of Anadi Karma. I have this attachment, that attachment. He described. So, the point is this when we actually advance, then we will see in ourselves. We will any t- fault will be magnified, and we'll actually think I'm so. F-. And nobody else will agree with us. I have no good qualities. Uh, you know, this uh, this is my problem. You know, a, they actually feel like that. That's how they come out and speak. Not I was dancing with Krishna, and I, you know, and so forth, which is what the standard kind of fare was out there. So he came out of sitting in bhajan for so long with this prayer, and then he said, "What?" He said. That the way to arrive at at, at 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 real deep inner meditation is through kirtan. This is what Mahaprabhu has has uh, personally preached. Therefore, his prayer towards the end, he says, "What is that? Kirtana prabhave, smaranasvabhave. By power of kirtan, meditation will will start to meditate automatically within. So let us be engaged in kirtan." Glorifying the, the Brajalila and so forth appropriately, what it's not, telling the people preaching. It's a very beautiful thing. If you look at it, it's very, very beautiful. I mean, it's, it has such, he has such high regard for that Brajalila. They say, well, he didn't give it out. He, didn't, he wasn't interested in that. You know, he didn't give out the Siddha Pranali. You know, he left out this part of Bhakti we know. Or didn't, he, he didn't have any, you know, he, he, it's not there in his, in his, in his sect. You know. It's there if you really want to know what it is. And you've got to really know what it's not if you want to know what it is. So this was his emphasis. He had so much regard for it. So a big, anyway, uh, considerable emphasis on Adhikar is there in, in uh, our Paribar. And therefore it's so beautiful.
So we'll get busy, we'll do work, we'll give up actions that aren't appropriate, that are not helping us and so forth, all these things. If we're not, if we're not uninterested in the Bhagavad Gita, which talks about, oh, we, oh there's no rasa there. You know, or, you know. No. We know that all these lower things, so-called, are also included within that. Yes, I'm sorry. Question? You were talking about uh, karma channels. Mm-hmm. And then got me thinking about like the bhakti sannyas. And you said that you need a pure heart to basically be a karma sannyas. But is it, with like bhakti sannyas, a vajna sannyas, is it somehow different in the sense that you're maybe more engaged in like the mission and stuff? So could it be that you, on some level your heart doesn't have to be totally pure? Take well, of course, knowledge Jones only comes in a pure heart, but bhakti comes in any heart. But who, who's, who's come, bhakti's come in his heart to a certain point, then if they maybe um, um, understand the tattva and they can preach it and they can represent it nicely, then it's, it, it, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. Prabhupada, Bhakti Siddhartha, gave sannyas to many people, they weren't perfect, but... They felt that they were eligible to engage in that way and it would help them. Of course, people can always make mistakes, aparad and so forth. So we don't look at the sannyas in the same way as a jnani does. For after all, it was a ploy by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and um, to, get, um, to help the mission, to attract people and so forth, not that he wasn't pure. So... No, I would. It would be nice to say that only this, those who have bhava can take sannyas, but we don't find in our mission, mission in our party bar that that has been always the standard. And um, by the determination of the guru, certain people were given leading brahminical type of positions, which is what a sannyasi is. We don't tend to take sannyas to be a to be a, you know a vaishya or a vaishya activity but to teach the other devotees. Know the scripture, and, you know, there's a gyan element. So, the sannyasis should, like sannyasis, in a good way to mark, they just study the scripture. So there should be some knowledge of the scripture and theory, and really under, good, good understanding of tattva, then we know that Baba will be coming in such people. Hmm. Generally, is the idea. They can understand the tattvas, and they're preaching, they're applying themselves accordingly. So, anyway, it's up to the the guru to decide. It's more or less a ploy for for helping the mission, but obviously we're not going to get it, give it to anybody and everybody. So, all right, we'll stop there. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. We are discussing from chapter 3, text 17 and 18. Yas tvatma ratir evasyat atma triptas chamanava atmani eva chasantushtas tasyakaryam navidyate naivatasya kriten arto nakritene hachakaschana nachascha sabhuteshu kaschidarta vyapasrayaha one who takes pleasure in the self, whose satisfaction is derived from the self, and who is content in the self alone, has no need to perform duties. 
He has nothing to gain by acting and nothing to lose by not acting. He needs no one for any purpose. See Krishna Bhagavan Ki Jai. So, this is a, a two-verse section in which Krishna speaks about the person who has attained knowledge of the self. You may recall the chapter began with Arjuna's confusion about whether he should pursue the course of knowledge or action. And Krishna told him that these aren't two different paths, but if one is qualified, they can try the path of knowledge. And if one is not yet pure of heart, satisfied in the self, then he has to act, and he should act in such a way that he cultures detachment from the results, offering the results to Bhagwan. So he emphasized in this chapter, Nishkam Karma Yoga, and it's called, the chapter's called Karma Yoga. You recall in the second chapter, it was after introducing the idea of yoga and speaking about bhakti, he abruptly said, but as for you, your adhikar is to do Nishkam Karma Yoga. You can do your duty and you can be attached to that, but you can't be attached to the fruits of your activities. That verse is important because it begins the whole discussion of adhikar, eligibility, that these six chapters are much have much to do with. So here he's emphasizing directly now that theme that he brought up, that which he told Harjun he had qualification for, and he's explaining it directly and indirectly. He's explaining the difference between jnana and this jnana yoga and nishkam karma yoga and that one the latter, Nishkam Karma Yoga, leads to jnana. And you can't artificially jump to that sitting and self-contemplation because knowledge won't come into a heart that's full of ignorance, and ignorance is material desires. That keeps us moving. So we have to learn to work with our situation. This is yoga. You kind of have to learn to work with the mind, not try to go against the mind. So you, you want to do things, so... You have desire to move about, so move about in this way, according to certain actions that are prescribed and so forth, and without it, cultivate detachment from the results, offering them to Bhagavan and so forth. That's easier than for a person with a heart full of desires to just sit down and contemplate the self. It'll be very difficult. In fact, Krishna says it'll give rise to other thoughts, and you'll just be a pretender and a cheater, and so don't do that. In this way, he's, as I say, talking about this Nishkam Karma Yoga directly and indirectly. After speaking about, in several verses, directly about Nishkam Karma Yoga and, and more, offering the fruits that you're not attached to to Bhagawan, which is just, just, just kind of like bhakti. What's the difference? Bhakti is doing what Krishna wants, and Karma Yoga is doing what you want, or what your propensity, what your tendency is, what, uh, and, uh, and offering the results. Hearing and chanting, that's another thing. That's just for the glorification of Bhagavan. It doesn't have anything to do with your material propensity. So, after talking about it directly, then he went and very much emphasizing the need for action. Even a, man, even a, even a monk has to act, he said. Who cannot act? Everybody has to act. So act, emphasizing, action, action, take the course of action. Don't artificially take the course of knowledge. This is the, the converse of that, that he's stressing. This just becomes a total then 
that this does more harm than good because it corrupts the society. It, it, it leaves a bad example for other people, a false meditator, a false jnani, hmm, who's thought to have risen above action and has proven himself not to be. This has become a disappointment. So he's really emphasizing, we don't need that. Rather, better to be an honest worker, he says. And he basically says, in an honest day's work, there's some purification. But in sitting down to meditate with a heart full of material desires, there's nothing. How can you meditate? So in every way, he's stressing action. Again, he goes so far as to say action, prescribed action, in itself is purifying. And as yesterday we learned, even if you have material desires, even if you're not detached from the fruit of the work, you want the fruit, but you act instead of whimsically, you act according to prescribed duty. There's purification in that. So he said, this is really the way the whole world moves progressively by making this kind of sacrifice of acknowledging that your mind and your senses have some connection with the macrocosm of the world. Your eyes depend on sun to see and so on and so forth. So you have to acknowledge this interdependence that we have and stop trying to act independently without insight into an understanding of the interconnectedness that uh, life is all about. So acknowledge the interconnectedness, acknowledge the, the, the mastery of my nature and so forth, and, uh, and life will be bountiful in this way, materially. And we talked a little bit about that, how by starting to reassess the position of Shakti, that's what's going on in the world. Since the time of Descartes, when the world was looked at something that was just in nature, including all the animals and so forth, apart from man, was looked at as just something that man could do whatever he wanted with, and that God would be pleased, because he's God's son, you know, or children, or something like that. Um, so this reevaluation of the Shakti, of what is what is the earth, what is the world, what is nature? Nature is one of the Shakti. So reevaluation on the part of human society of it. And uh, so a whole uprising against exploiting nature and so forth. This is more moving in the direction of what Krishna was talking about. Yesterday, when he said the world moves by sacrifice, by pleasing the gods, then life will be bountiful and so forth, which basically means by not exploiting nature for your own purpose, but acknowledging that it has a purpose of its own, living with gratitude in relation to the, the stars, the sun, the moon, and all these things that we're dependent upon. Hmm? And so he went to a low end, so to speak. He went below Nishkam Karma Yoga to emphasize Nishkam Karma Yoga um, because he was talking about working with the desire to acquire things, to live a bountiful life. Still, he said, if you want to do that and you want to do that successfully, then you have to sacrifice has to be at the heart of that. Hmm? So some sacrifice. Don't act whimsically. Walk, act according to this, the sacred uh, texts and their injunctions and so forth. So all this is trying to, you can see, trying to bring us into the into the grip of the absolute. It's trying to control us, but control us in such a way that we move away from the wild, the animalism in us. So we have that tendency to, to we come from there. We've come from the lower form of life. See, now we're in this form of life. We're like on probation. We're getting let out of the out of the pen. What are we going to do? Are we going to act like a big animal and so forth? So there, 
with that come injunctions. With, with that comes with that reasoning power and that freedom of human life comes to the responsibility to acknowledge where the freedom's coming from. What the, and there's a responsibility to the human life, so to use it properly. So the scriptures try to harness our humanity. And, and, and there are ways, for example, in the Dharma Shastra to do everything that's, that's human, marry, have kids, eat, this, that, and the other thing, in such a way that it's all in consideration of, of, of God. So a religious way of life this is, uh, is, a, is, while it may be the low end, it's a, it's a real beginning for most people. Hmm? And so he's gone down there, to, below Nishkam Karmio, but just to emphasize action. Then now he surfaces from there and goes to the high end, to Gyan, in these two verses. He says, One who takes pleasure in the self, yas tvat maratir, whose satisfaction is derived from the self and who is content in the self alone has no need to perform duties. He has nothing to gain by acting and nothing to lose by not acting. He needs no one for any purpose. So this is a different kind of person now. This is the person who's passed through Nishkam Karma Yoga and attained self-satisfaction. That person alone has no reason to act, has no obligation to act, because he's not exploiting anymore. The tendency to exploit is not in him. The tendency to exploit may be in one. So move along these lines, sacrifice the results, keep doing the kind of activities that would otherwise be exploitive, but moving away from it. So when you, when you come, become free from that, then you have no more rules. There are no more duties to, to perform. And if by not doing any, any duty, there's no negative effect that's incurred. So this is a high position and it's to be arrived at through Nishkam Karma Yoga, he says. The position of the, of course, we want naturally, being devotees, we want to take this even further, but this is as far as Krishna's going here. He speaks about Atmarati, Atmaram, Atmarati, Atmatriptas, one who's, who is uh, satisfied in the self, one who is takes pleasure in the self, who lives in the self. In, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the classic uh, example of such a person is Sukadev. He was an Atmaram. This Atmaram idea is a big idea in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It comes up over and over and over and over again. We find it, uh, for example, in the Bhagavatam, where, here it is in the Gita, of course, but in the Bhagavatam, this Bhagavatam wants to take us from self-satisfaction to, to bhakti, from jnana to bhakti. So does the Gita, of course. It does a good job. Bhagavatam, even more so. Sometimes people construe the Gita to be about jnana, ultimately, and, but it's difficult to construe the Bhagavatam like that. Some people do, but it's more difficult. It's more overtly about bhakti. There we find the position of the Atmarama mentioned here is emphasized for the sake of glorifying the superior position of bhakti. The Atmarama Sukadeva is, is, of course, the speaker of the Bhagavatam. He's self-satisfied. It tells us that the person who's going to speak about bhakti effectively, what does effectively mean? That, that he can speak to the, to the emperor 
And if you can, it means if you can convert the emperor, the whole world could be converted. This person has power. That kind of speaking, he has the power to change the world. What is vacho vegam, manasakoda vegam, jiva vegam, udurapasta vegam, etan vegam, yo pizahita dira, sarvam apimam pitivim sasishat. Sarvam apimam pitivim sasishat. Pitivim means the earth, shisha. Everyone on earth becomes his shisha. That person. Nivitatarsaya rupagiya manat bhavosarat chotamanobiramat. Gautama shloka gunanavaranam. Puman virajita virapashuvanat. This is said about Sukhadeva when he appeared on the scene. Nivitatarsaya rupagiya manat. He had no material desire. That's why he's naked. He's appearing naked. means he had no, no duty to perform, no, no desire. Of course, by the time he's depicted as such and described as such in the Bhagavatam, He's already done something else. What is that? He's passed from jnana to bhakti. And when did he do that? We find in the conversation where, uh, where, where Sudha Goswami is explaining the, the genesis of the Bhagavatam. What's the genesis of the Bhagavatam? The trance of Vyas. Vyas had written a form of the Bhagavatam and all the Puranas and so forth, but he was not satisfied. So Narada came to him and said, here's why you're not satisfied. You haven't directly come out and glorified bhakti in a roundabout way you've talked about it. So go sit now in samadhi, meditate on Krishna Lila, then come back and write, rewrite the Bhagavatam. So, samadhi nanusmaratadviceshtitam. He said, samadhi nanusmaratadviceshtitam. You are qualified. Yasa was a very qualified person to sit in trance, meditate. So he did. He came out and Sutta describes then what he experienced in his trance in about eight verses or so. And there we find the whole Chintibeta Beta Tattva. We find uh, uh, that um, he saw the uh, Purna Purusha. He saw, uh, so what is that? What is it called? Yeah, I'm thinking of the verse. He said, Bhakti Yogena Manasi Samyapanite Amale Pashat Purusham. He said, he saw the Pashat uh, Purusham Purnam. He saw the Purusham Purnam in, in, in Bhakti Amale with a pure heart in meditation. He said, Bhakti Yogena Manasi Samyak Pranahite Amale. He saw the Purusha, Purna Purusha. Purna Purusha means what? He saw the original, the full Purusha. He means he saw Swayam Bhagwan. means he saw he who, who all the Kal and Angsa are part, are, come from all the avatars, the purusha, and so forth, whom they all come from. It also means saw him in full. I mean, saw him with his internal shakti. Saw him with his surup shakti and his lila and so forth. Apashat purusham purnam maya cha And separate from that, maya cha He also saw maya behind him, another energy, the maya shakti. And it goes on. He saw the jivas... Uh, some mohita jiva, bewildered by maya. He saw the remedy, hmm, bhakti yoga, hmm, and uh, and so on. And then, so the then in the, in the context of this explanation, the uh, the question comes: Why did Sukadev, uh, who was liberated? And Atmarama uh, take the trouble to study the Srimad Bhagavatam. So the famous Atmarama verse comes 
there and explains that what? Atmaramascha munayo nir granta api urukrame kurvanti hoitakim bhaktim itam bhutaguna hari. So this is the prominent place it appears. It says what? That atmaramascha um, munayo, there are some munis, rishis, uh, that are self, atmaram, self-satisfied, atmarati, at, atmatriptas, here it's the same idea. Atmaramascha munayo nir granta api urukrame. And there, nir granta, the granta means a knot. So the knot is the ahankar, false ego, knot of attachment that ties us to the world. It's been untied in their heart. They're free. Granta also means book. So near Granta means they're beyond books. Hmm. This idea is given back in the second chapter of the Gita where it said, Nirved Shotavyasya Shutasya Cha. Everything that's to be heard has been heard and to be heard. He's passed beyond that. This kind of person. So... He, this is this is the kind of person Sukadev was. He was an Atmarama. He was beyond all books, but he took the trouble to study this book, Srimad Bhagavatam. The question is why? Atmarama Chamunaoni Grantapi Rukame Guruante Hoyatukim Bhaktim Itam Buddha Gunohari. Because Itam Buddha Gunohari. Because such is the nature of the qualities of Hari. They attract the Atmaramas. Those who have nothing to do get busy <laughs> in relation to him. Hmm? Sukadeva's story was he was sitting in the forest just meditating, and, and uh, Vyas wanted to teach him Bhagavatam, so he sent a woodcutter, and the woodcutter was chopping wood, and he gave him some verses from Bhagavatam to sing about Krishna. So he was singing them. When Sukadeva heard that, he, could, he was charmed by hearing the qualities of Hari. So he followed the woodcutter home, and there he was back at his father's hermitage, and there he studied then Srimad Bhagavatam. Hmm? The essence of Srimad Bhagavatam, which then he reiterated, of course, to Parikshit and and so forth. So it's a very uh, important idea, the Atmarama, that's used as a way of explaining this, the, the superiority of bhakti. Hmm? He has nothing to do with the Atmaram, but he finds something of interest to do. So what kind of thing must that be? It must be of another nature. There must be, therefore, some activity, some quality, some form, some movement within transcendence that's similar in appearance or, or sounds the same, but it's different entirely than the movement of the material world. When Chaitanya Charitamrita, when Mahaprabhu converted Sarvabhama Bhattacharya was on the basis of the Atmarama Shloka that he spoke that blew the mind of the uh, Bhattacharya. Bhattacharya was explaining the Vedanta and Mahaprabhu was sitting silent and his silence and the gravity that ensued just made Sarvabhama uneasy so he asked him, well, what have you understood? And Mahaprabhu finally replied, he said, well, I understand the Vedanta but what you said, I don't understand that. And um, then um, he said, you know, I guess Sarvabhama had explained the Atmarama verse too in seven different ways. So Mahaprabhu explained it in like 64 different ways. And that display of gyan, knowledge on the part of Mahaprabhu, just flattened Sarvabhama. He knew this is a supernatural person. This is, this is not, this is what my brother-in-law told me. He's God. And his brother and Gopinath tried to convert him. He said, anyway, you know, you Bengalis, you know, you know <laughs> you've got some idea, but 
I'm a learned man, you know, I'm not going to be blown over by some sentiment that, you know, the kid in the neighborhood's God. He may be a sannyasi and that's glorious, but... but then he realized it, so Mahabhu showed a great extraordinary opulence at that time. After creating the teachable moment by his silence, then he showered him with, with made knowledge look small. He had so much of it. So Sarvabham was uh, converted by his explanations of the Atma Sloka. Later we find it again in the Bhagavad Gita, Chaitanya Charitamrita. Sanatana Goswami was schooled well by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And after that he asked, he was a scholar, so he said, you know, I heard, by the way, um, that in Puri you converted Sarvabhoma by explaining the Atma verse in some 60-some ways. And I just wondered if I could hear those explanations again. And so Mahaprabhu said, no. I said something at that time, I don't know what. Hmm? Like the wind came and uh, <laughs> spoke through me so many things, but I could say something now. And then he gave another some 64 explanations. And in the context of that explanation, he said what? He said also, he said, Bhaktirasu Bhav, the characteristic of Bhav, Brahmahoite Kari Akarshan, Brahmahoite Kore Akarshan. The nature of Bhakti is such that it has the power, akarshana, to attract someone absorbed in Brahman. Someone who has completely been left the world, that's power, right? And is free from all obligations, actions, self-satisfied, has no purpose to fulfill, needs no one. Such a ab- person so absorbed in Brahman, bhakti has the power to attract them. This is the reference that we're speaking about of Sukadeva, for example. Mahaprabhu goes on and gives the example of Sukadeva and the Kumaras and the Navayogendras, all examples of the Bhagavatam of Atmaramas who became devotees by the mercy of Bhagwan. We know uh, uh, there he even quotes Shankar, who in one place says, oh, sometimes the, the... Brahman realized people, they take up the worship of the deity. So why do they do that? It can't be material. Sanatana Prabhu cites him also in Bhagavatamrita when he discusses this topic, when they're in the, the debate between the Bhakti Shastras and the Jnana Shastras and so forth. So there's evidence, that considerable evidence, that Bhakti has the power to attract Someone who's absorbed in Brahman means someone. It's one thing if I attract you, you're you're attached to something material, and that thing's here today and gone tomorrow, and it's disappointing you. So it doesn't take me a lot of power for me to attract your attention, right? If I have something better, mm-hmm. you're absorbed in something material. It's not making you happy. But now these people are absorbed in the self, and they're happy. Mm-hmm. They don't need to need to move. They're satisfied, self-satisfied. They have no purpose to fulfill. Hmm. How will we attract them? Hmm. So Bhakti, the uh, Bhagavatam and so forth, that uses this example in a prominent way to emphasize the power of Bhakti. So now what to speak if you apply the Bhakti in relation to your material attachment, how powerful it is. Who would be in the right mind would take any other path when it has the power to bring people out of Brahman and... Um, and engage them in bhakti, in glorifying the Lord, ultimately participating in the leela and so forth. So we find this concept of Atmaram mentioned here. 
used in Bhagavatam in a wonderful way and then played out in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Um, and uh, it surfaces over and over again, the Kumaras, again, they went to Vaikuntha and so forth. The question, of course, may arise as to how is it that they're liberated or brought from liberation or from, from Brahman realization of bhakti? And the answer is, by the mercy of the Lord, he decided to do that to the Kumaras, for example. He decided... Uh, to do that to Sukadev and so so forth. But is it only to the Jivan Mukta? Jivan Mukta is one who's liberated in this life, a jnani, could be a devotee, it's a different kind of Jivan Mukti, but for the jnani, he's liberated and he's waiting for his parabdha to finish off, which is death. His parabdha karma is manifest karma. He's watching it, it passes, he dies, and he enters the Brahman. So the question is, can they be liberated from the Jivan Mukta stage? We know that Sukadeva was a Jivan Mukta. The Kumaras were Jivan Muktas. All these examples are Jivan Muktas. They're in this life, they're liberated. Now then they go from here to to, to Brahman. You know, Bideha Mukti. They leave the body, they enter into the Brahman, finished, it's final final mukti. Can they be attracted? There are some evidences that indicate that it's possible, and of course, it's a, a, the answer is just by the mercy of the Lord. But the question is, what will cause a Lord to be so disposed towards someone? My reasoning is that sometimes jnanis, perhaps inadvertently, help to bring people to the path of bhakti. They speak about bhakti, they glorify bhakti, they may engage in bhakti for the sake of mukti, which means bhakti can give mukti. We never hear of mukti giving bhakti. Bhakti has the power to give mukti. That's a small thing for bhakti. So they think that's the sum and substance, so they use bhakti for mukti. So they have some connection with bhakti. And maybe they speak about bhakti, so some people get involved in bhakti. And then from there, they end up going to shuddha bhakti, and they learn the whole idea of bhakti. But nevertheless, they think favorably about that teacher in the past. Because that devotee is thinking favorably, Krishna takes him and pulls him out of Brahman. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> this is what would cause him to be merciful to a particular soul who's a, merged his identity in Brahman, lost sight of his individuality, to again give him sight of that in the form, to participate in the Leela. So this, we say, just to underscore the power of bhakti, even a bhakta, aspiring, you know, sadhaka has some regard for some jnani who's now liberated, just on the basis of that Krishna may liberate him. So, atmarama, big thing, but it's a small thing, ideas in relation to bhakti. Therefore, one of the characteristics of, of Shuddha Bhakti is that it makes mukti look small. It's a small thing in comparison. So here, Krishna's touched on them, and that'll be more the subject of the next chapter. And then he goes on with a therefore, which kind of concludes the section. Without attachment to the fruits of your work, constantly engage in your duty as a warrior. For by acting without attachment, one attains God consciousness. So again, the emphasis for Arjun, Anishkam Karma Yoga. And then he'll give some examples and so forth. Are there any questions? Yes? When you were talking about Nishkan Karma Yoga and Bhakti in the beginning, mm-hmm. like the difference between them, and got me thinking, like, say, like, if a devotee is 
living outside but donating money. Is that Nishkam Karma Yoga then? You were saying that the difference between Bhakti and Nishkam Karma Yoga is that they do their own thing, they give the fruit. Um, they're kind of, I think Vishnu Chakri Thakur has a name for it. Some, yeah, something like that. Bhagavan Arpita Nishkam Karma Yoga. So, it's, which is what he's emphasizing here, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they're in the school of Shuddha Bhakti, so it's a little complicated. It's like an ordinary person's doing that. They don't know, they haven't got the, the grace of a sadhu, so they haven't got Adhikar for Bhakti. So they are in the path of Bhakti, they've, they've got the sadhu, they've got initiation, they're in the Bhakti Marg, they're cultivating Shuddha Bhakti. So it's a, a little different. What they should do is they should work under the direction of the guru, and um, and they have to, and, and householders have to have some livelihood and so forth. So there's some allowance for that in bhakti. So they work, they keep some allowance, but they give their, their fund money for Krishna consciousness. Is the idea there? Their um, what do they call it? disposable income, for Krishna consciousness. Then they're a sharanagata and. And um, they have a livelihood, nonetheless, that's required for their situation. So there's a place for householders in bhakti, and they're not going to be doing the same things that, that monastics are doing, exactly. Um, so I'd be a little reticent just to call them nishkam karma yogis, but because they're on the path of bhakti and they're householders, and they can't, they have other obligations and so forth, and... Uh, And all, they have a little more interest in the world and such. But there's, uh, Bhakti's very generous. It allows us, I mean, that uh, it's not like Gyan, it's very generous. So it embraces such persons with material desires, Bhagavatam says. They may have material desires and they may pursue the material desires, Bhagavatam says in 11th Canto, Krishna speaking to Uddhava, but, um, and they do things that are not in their interest, but then they feel some remorse for that, that they have not lived up to the standard of bhakti, and that rectifies them. So, we want to call them devotees. (laughs) Something like that. Another question? So for this theoretical jnani that Krishna might pull out of the Brahman, they would obviously have some offense that they would have to deal with, because they previously thought of bhakti as sattviki bhakti, you know, the form of Bhagavan as temporary and whatnot, so... Well, there's all kinds of people like this. I mean, the Mayabad philosophy is particularly singled out to, to be offensive, but it's not everybody that wants mukti is, thinks offensively about Bhagavan and has a philosophy as such. I mean, I suppose any, if you want to look at it like any philosophy that says that that mukti is the ideal and in that there's no, there's no form of the Lord and so forth. Um, I guess to the extent that that's embraced and preached and so forth, there's, it's considered offensive. Mm-hmm. But who are they offending? They're not offending devotees. Bhagavan, so Bhagavan can can rectify. If they offend devotees, then Bhagavan can't do anything about it. The devotee has to forgive them. But um, there's a lot of people probably don't really think of it like that. They, 
They don't have a clear idea. They want liberation. All right, we'll stop there. Simon Bhagavad Gita, Gita.